Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Hey, welcome back everybody to another episode of our Mormon News Roundup. I'm Al, here with my co-host Dives. Uh, tune in to Mormon News Roundup as we discuss the latest fallout from the Huntsman tithing lawsuit, Julian Orr's BYU graduation mini-protest, and the premiere of the FX miniseries Under the Banner of Heaven, streaming on Hulu. Uh, we've got a new sponsor. Signature Books is committed to expanding the scope of Mormon studies and to enhancing the opportunities for creative and scholarly expression. Signature champions works that are honest, thoughtful, and grounded in the best critical thinking that emphasize human experience and intellect, that advocate civil discourse, that engage and challenge, and that encourage new ways of approaching the past, present, and future. So thank you very much for Signature Books for coming on and partnering with us as a sponsor. Hey, a few corrections from last week, Al. Uh, we, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we said that they were subject to disfellowshipment. I think we added an extra syllable there. They just call it disfellowshipped. Uh, and that's kind of an arcane term now. If you look in the church handbook, they don't call it disfellowshipped anymore. They call it a restriction, a membership restrictions. That's now, right. It sounds nicer. I, I miss the times, Al, when... When you're excommunicated, that has a nice ring to it. I think that sends the right message. Mm-hmm. You're exed. You're yeah. excommunicated. Ex-husband, ex-wife. That really lets somebody know, hey, buddy, you messed up. Now, no more excommunication. They say, With, we withdrew your membership. That, that, that just doesn't have a good ring to it in my ears. Yeah, it, it, it sounds political, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I just don't, it doesn't have a nice ring to it and also yeah. disfellowshipped I think that's why we stumbled over that last week is that they don't call it disfellowship anymore they call it membership restrictions and I also don't think that that sends the right message I, no, I like it a does. clear message when, when people uh, are in the wrong I, just, I like to let them know I, call me, call me yeah. sadistic well you know back in the early 90s there was that whole movement of political correctness and it still continues on today in fact it's kind of uh, morphed into the social justice warrior movement but um, the, uh, the the funny thing about this whole thing is so what I'm getting at is I'm a short person. I'm only five foot six. So, you know, people would call in the 90s, they called it vertically challenged. I'm not vertically challenged. I mean, it's it sounds nice, but it also sounds like uh, kind of garbage. Uh, I'm short. I've always been short. It sounds better. It sounds nicer. Just call me short. Well, I'll, I can tell you that I'm five foot seven and a quarter. And when you're our size, every inch counts. But I right. <laughs> know that I've got the lead, the edge on the height for this podcast. That's important uh, to me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A couple of other corrections. Uh, I said I misspoke last week. We were talking about the children of record. Those are the baby blessings. Um, yes. You're what most people would call christenings. The church for the last decade was really um, averaging around 120,000 strong for about 10 years in a row and then it dipped going into covid and i accidentally misspoke and said the children record were a combination of baptisms and blessings it's just blessings just blessings okay we also misspoke just a little bit we both used some incorrect pronouns when we were talking about the transgender issue and we want to make sure that we are very sensitive to this this is Mm -hmm. something that i'm still getting um used to and still working on so if uh 
you know, on behalf of my co-host, that we apologize if we did not get the pronouns perfectly correct in that Absolutely. last And uh, finally, um, Andrew Garfield, uh, who is the star uh, of the Under a Banner of Heaven, which has just been released. Uh, we had the first two episodes that were released just this last week. Uh, FX series released onto Hulu for streaming. Um, he was not raised LDS. Um, that was a, that's a rumor that uh, you, know, you see these lists of celebrities who were supposedly LDS at one point in time, everyone from Jewel to Roseanne Barr, and, and mm -hmm. some of these things are legendary tales, and it looks like that was just a legendary tale. He was not raised LDS. Yeah, I, I, I learned that uh, later on this week as well when we got digging into the, uh, the story behind the banner, Under the Banner of Heaven. Right, and I do want to uh, say that uh, this week uh, we are, I'm recording for I'm in my own ward house here in Washington, D.C. So I'm I'm in the belly of the beast. I am in the great <laughs> as we speak right now. Al, I always feel that it is a lot more spiritual to record from a place that's been dedicated. Now, I don't know. I don't know if that's something that you share, but I don't think you can go wrong in recording from a dedicated building. Well, I, I think that uh, your part's going to come through a lot clearer than mine for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, hey, a couple of follow-ups from last week. They weren't really corrections, but the uh, D.C. temples, the private tours have concluded, and now the public tours are commencing. And um, we discussed last week how the Washington, D.C. temple had four years of refurbishments and that the private tours had been commencing and that they had sent uh, Elder, Elder Christofferson to give tours. But you know what? They also sent Elder Cook to give tours as well, not quite as prominent as the other two, but... In the church's releases from the uh, churchroom.churchofjesuschrist.org, uh, Elder Cook was there, too. So we had three apostles for this uh, reopening. And also there was a number of former U.S. senators who were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are active, who are also giving tours. This is some of the most high-profile tours that you're ever going to be able to see. Wow. This has been a real, uh, a real event. It sure has. And they've also done some uh, tours for gay rights organizations um, to go through the temple. The church is trying to reach out, give an olive leaf, and to build bridges in, in that community. I thought that that was interesting. Now, yeah. uh, the preparation that I had for this episode is actually rather embarrassing. I, wa I read the Under the Banner of Heaven book, which is like a 13-hour book as read by the author. Mm -hmm. I watched both of the uh, uh, premiere, premiere episodes. That's the two... Uh, uh, Under the Banner of Heaven episode, so it takes me 15 hours. I also watched Jillian Orr's Mormon Stories pod uh, episode, which was three hours long, and that's in addition to some of the other preps. So this is an embarrassing amount of preparation, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to be um, ready to go for this. You know, I also surveyed some of the other Mormon news podcasts out there, including um, the Mormon News Report. You know, and I have to tell you that <laughs> listen to the Mormon News Report which is not, no longer, uh, they're no longer actively broadcasting. They, they folded up shop about two years ago. And we, we kind of want to fill the niche that they left behind. They were also mm -hmm. all, uh, sponsored by Signature Books. Yeah. So, um, you know, I listened to one of their episodes to see, you know, what are they doing right? What can we do to improve? And let me tell you some of the episodes or uh, some of the articles that they covered. President Uchtdorf goes golfing. That was an episode. Oh, my. A whole um, episode. Well, and that, that, I mean, that was one of the articles. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. You know, what's next? <laughs> wow. <laughs> what's next? Somebody saw Elder Bednar at Costco. 
you know, I mean, uh-huh. th- these are not the type of articles that I think are very interesting. I mean, oh no, these, those, those there's not a lot of meat there. That's definitely the milk. <laughs> you know, and I uh, tweeted to uh, uh, Mormon News Report and also sent a private email, and they didn't respond to any of that. It's a little bit disappointing. I haven't heard back from Mormon Stories or Mormon mm-hmm. either. But hey, we did hear back from Signature Books, so mm-hmm. we're grateful for that. Now, uh, that takes us. Is that are there anything else from last week that uh, we need to bring up? Um, I, I don't see anything off the top of my head, or uh, but I think um, I'm just really excited about this week's episode, and I thought last week's episode was uh, was pretty well covered. Yeah, I thought it was a great episode. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that Mormon News report, they spent a lot of time with Deseret News sources, with Church of Jesus Christ dot newsroom mm-hmm. uh, sources, and they would just kind of read the articles. I mean, our listeners are pretty smart out there. If they want to read the articles, they can find the articles. We're trying sure. to find the articles that are hard to find. Mm-hmm. And it's not that the church's news articles are not good. They are good articles, and we bring them up from time as well. It's just that you don't always get the complete picture if you only stick to the church's news source, KSL Desert News, and its own website. Yeah. And that brings and- us to our first article. Which yeah, will not get on the first church's uh, news site at all. And that's mm-hmm. the church and their tithing. Yeah, so uh, this one actually comes from uh, the other side of the valley, uh, as I like to call it, the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, Salt, Drake, Salt Lake Tribune is owned by John Huntsman. Um, is it John Huntsman? It's owned by one of the Huntsmans. I, I, I think it's John Huntsman, um, brother to the, uh, the guy that's doing the, uh, the lawsuit. I can never remember the name of it. Is it James Huntsman? James, for heaven's sakes, it should be should be so simple. They're named after those apostles for the, for the Jesus chose James and John. So, yeah, James Huntsman, uh, multimillionaire uh, uh, out of Southern California, has brought a lawsuit against the church, trying to get five million dollars worth of tithing funds back, um, and not just that, but with interest. So, uh, you know, the church has been hanging on to his money and he's accusing them of not doing what uh, the church says that it is doing with his money. So he wants his money back now that he's left the church Um, and the church is uh, fighting really hard to keep um, uh, not only his money, but also to keep their financial secret. And uh, this article, um, the way it talks about the church's arguments about keeping it a secret i i i'm really kind of uh befuddled that this could be a thing they they're saying things like well if we uh divulge our financials then that opens us up for public scrutiny obviously yeah that that's that's what that does you know if you're going to be a transparent 501c3 tax-exempt organization then you have to have your financials out open for public scrutiny. That's <laughs> how the game's played. And these guys are using that as an argument that that could really harm the church. And I think that's actually going to end up doing more damage to them uh, in court than uh, an actual justified argument. So Right. And this article was published on April 25th, 2022 by Tony Semerad. And it's entitled, Why the LDS Church Says Tithing Funds Should Be Kept Secret. And they said specifically, now this Huntsman lawsuit has been going on for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I believe it is he paid something like $1.3 million in tithing. And if that's 10% of what he makes, you can obviously see that this is a very uh, 
well-to-do member of the church who is now a former member of the church. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Huntsman was, um, you know, he was the governor of Utah and he was really a Jack Mormon as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it says that, you know, they say, hey, it says in the article that um, that the church is keeping its finances private for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. And in September, a federal judge threw out the Huntsman lawsuit in his quest to recover multi-million dollars worth of tithing. But that, uh, this article points out that that case has now been appealed. Yeah. And that there's a strong public interest in accessing these financial, uh, the, the church's finances. Mm-hmm. And, and it poses the question, would financial disclosures harm the church? That's a, that is the question is, you know, why would the financial disclosures harm the church? Cause that's what the, that, that's actually what the church is saying is, well, financial disclosures could harm the church. And my follow-up question is why? Well, also, another interesting thing about this, Al, is that who's the church's go-to law firm? Um, Curtin McConkie, of course. Right, but this lawsuit is not being defended by Curtin McConkie. They hired this by an outside, out, uh, a Los Angeles-based church attorney, mm-hmm. Rick Richmond. Yeah, they outsource this instead of using their in-house counsel. They are taking this lawsuit so seriously that they want outside counsel mm-hmm. to work on this. Yeah. Now, uh, he, he is a member of the church. So, oh, is uh, he? Yeah, he is. Um, but he, he is uh, not a part of the Curtin McConkie uh, firm. He is out of Southern California. I would I, I, for, to give the church the benefit of the doubt, I would. Uh, speculate maybe that's because it's taking place in California, but I would oh. I would think that Kurt McConkie has uh, you know uh, what credentials to operate in California as well. One would think. Yeah. Now, finally, also have on the record here, Rick Richmond says, "Okay, the church. We we finally have a reason that the church is not to close, disclosing their tithing, which I think is fascinating because in times past the church just says, well, we don't do it, and they never really given a reason why. But now we yeah. do." And it said, mm-hmm. quote, it would subject those tithing decisions to public scrutiny, pressure, and questioning, end quote. Mm-hmm. So the church does not want the members or anyone else to know, that to, to, to say, hey, why are you, I don't know, building a $1.5 million mega mall across the street? Yeah. Why did you buy a $150 million hotel in Oahu from the Marriott Corporation? Mm-hmm. Why did you buy a... I don't know, uh, a 100,000 acre uh, cattle ranch in Florida. It doesn't want to have to answer any of those questions whatsoever. And to go one step further on you, Dives, he, uh, it, the church definitely doesn't want to answer the other question. Why? Why did you buy them all? Why did you buy the properties? Why have you bought the ranches? You know, the, that's the other thing. Or, or uh, you know, well, sorry, you asked the why. I want to know how. How did you? How did the church come up with the money to make all these purchases? Right, and if you look at the, you have to tie all these things together and kind of try to try to piece it all together. But if you look at the Enzyme Peak leak, mm-hmm. and again, these are all in leaks; these are not in official sources. We understand that yeah. the Enzyme Peak leak by uh, Mr. Nielsen said that the way that the church obtained the money is first of all through tithing. Then they mm-hmm. moved the tithing into investment arms yeah. of the church, whether it is in real estate, whether it is in stocks, whether it is in 
other appreciating assets that everything, the basis from everything comes from tithing. That tithing then becomes a different type of money within the church that it uses to buy the rest of these items. So when they say that the city, the church has put out statements, for instance, that the City Creek Mall was not purchased or funded or it had nothing whatsoever to do with tithing. But the thing is, is that the church wouldn't have money to have a commercial investment arm if it hadn't been from tithing to begin with. So they moved the tithing over. That money then was put into commercial properties, which gain money. Then they're using that money to invest in City Creek. So you could say technically that is correct. But tithing is the basis for everything. Yeah. And uh, I'd say this has been a couple months ago. They uh, they had an article that said uh, that well, I guess they did an interview with Mr. Nelson and he said, well, if you're going to, you know, refer to things as tithing, then, you know, he said they throw around the term widow's might a lot in uh, in the church's office building. And he said that those son- those funds are considered sacred, but they also move them around a lot. And so the widow's might may spend time over. In, in this account, may spend time over in that account. So th- there's a lot of questions as to uh, what these consecrated funds are doing uh, in between um, the bishop's office where they get uh, donated and when they finally get uh, spent for the, pur- the express purposes of building uh, churches and, uh, you know, maintaining temples, you know, and everything that the church says it uses tithing money for. Yeah, and that's the thrust of the lawsuit. It says, hey, I thought my tithing was going to go to feeding the hungry, mm-hmm. clothing the naked, visiting the sick and the afflicted, and um, alleviating human suffering across, across the globe. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't appear that my money went towards that, which is what the of me contributing to this. A 5013C says, you're going to give us money, and this is what we're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Is that that is not what happened here. So we need to lay open the church's books to see what they are actually doing with the money so that we know if this has any merit. Yeah. That's what they're basically, from my reading, is I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but I play one on TV, that they're asking for. And the church says, no, that will do harm, direct harm to the church, because then the members and others can question the church on their uh, use of, of, of tithing and a fast mm-hmm. offering and other things. Whereas now, it's completely unquestioned because there's there's no substance. This the church does not release anything. Yeah. Now going back to the times of Joseph Smith, that's exactly how he set the church up. Is that the church was there for, uh, you know, democratic vote. That uh, yeah, the church membership had the right to scrutinize how monies were were spent. But it seems like that's right. just a, a change in policy. I don't know when that change happened, but well. Yeah. You no, know, from from my humble research, Al, and you get what you pay for on this podcast, by the way. So, yeah. <laughs> um, the church used to be much more up until 1969, I think it was. The church did release much more robust financials, but yeah. in a time of 1969, that's when the church posted its first negative growth. Uh, it's the church posted its first debt in some time. And as we've noticed, when something doesn't reflect very positively on the church, their first inclination is to, well, let's not let's not talk about it. Let's not, you know, mm-hmm. let's let's move it off to the side. So once the church posted a debt, they stopped uh, producing those financials because if the church is in debt, that's not to the members. This is supposed mm-hmm. to be Christ's church on earth. And if it's posting a debt, something must be wrong. Yeah. So 
after the 1969, that's when we stopped getting any decent financials from the church. So I believe that that is the uh, answer to your what you brought up. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Um, I think the the final note that I have is if if the church is taking that widow's mite and in between the bishop's office and uh, building a, a church or a temple, the church is putting it into an investment fund. I think that the church membership that is making those donations has the right to know that. Right. And if you also look back, there's, there's a lot of history here, but the, you know, after the enzyme peak, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a scandal or whatever, after that brought forward, the church did do some interviews um, from the presiding bishopric, who was the one who is controlling the tithing is really the presiding bishopric. Yeah. And um, also the director of Enzyme Peak, um, who, by the way, is like a de facto general authority. You you have 15 apostles at the head of the church. You actually have 15 plus one because the head of that Enzyme Peak is one of the most powerful men in the church. Mm -hmm. So they they in in some of the interviews, they said, you know, well, why don't some of this? And they said kind of in an off the record sort of thing in the basement or in the entryway of the enzyme peak that the reason that they don't disclose this is that if members knew how much money that the church had, it might impact their desire to tithing and that would not be. So you kind of have to try to piece together what the, what the answers to this are. So I guess we'll be following this, uh, this Huntsman lawsuit. I don't think it's, it has much of a chance of going through. I don't think you're going to get much out of it, Mm -hmm. but uh, be interested to follow it. Yeah, uh, the the arguments right now, the latest one that the Huntsman's coming back with is, well, I think that the court needs to see the unredacted documents. Because uh, so far, well, all that the judges are making their calls off of are redacted documents. So there's not the transparency. Uh, there's not full transparency there. There's uh, The church is producing documents. It's complying. But those documents are redacted in some way. I see. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, be interesting to see how it all works out. Our next article is uh, published on Monday, April 25th, 2022 on Yahoo by Haven Eresist. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but it says son of cult leader Warren Jeffs describes life on a Texas ranch where he had to call a 15 year old girl mom. So it's Wendell Jefferson, who was the son, according to the article, the son of cult leader Warren Jeffs, who spoke about his family and his freedom. He grew up with dozens of siblings, and he was told to call his dad's 15-year-old wife's mom. And this, he spoke ahead of the premiere of a new uh, documentary, which is called Preaching Evil, A Wife on the Run with Warren Jeffs. And you remember that uh, sprawling 1,700-acre ranch near El Dorado, Texas, which they nicknamed Yearning for Zion. You remember that? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it was raided. Um, it was raided about, I don't know, about 10 years after it was built. Yeah. So Warren Jeffs. He was arrested in 20, uh, 2006 for uh, mm-hmm. underage for basically statutory rape, and he's been in jail ever since, and he's been, been off of the street ever since. Okay, what was the last thing you heard? Um, so, let's see, we were talking about, uh, so Warren Jeff's whole uh, incident in 2006, he got arrested, and that's the, about okay. where he dropped off. Okay, and then starting in 2008, that's when the uh, leaders, the law enforcement in, in Texas, decided that they wanted to rate this compound because they had credible evidence that underage marriages were taking place, specifically with older men and younger women. And they took 400 children out of the complex, including 
uh, Jefferson, who's now 21, and uh, with his sister, his mom, his half-brother. And he's talked about how now he's found freedom and he's learned how to date and that his life just is so much better. He's, uh, he's engaged to be married. And his story is, is just absolutely incredible. And it also highlights you know, the difficulties with trying to break up polygamist uh, in, in any polygamous organization. You know, after they separated those 400 children, they were kept in child custody with the, uh, with, uh, the Texas uh, you know, Department of Child Services in Texas. Mm-hmm. And after two years, guess what happened? All, of, back. <laughs> all those children went back to the state. You just break them up and then there's nowhere for them to go. Those wives and those children, they don't. You send them back, they go right back into it, most of them. Now, a few of them yeah. leave like an article like Jefferson, but like Jefferson, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's impossible to try to break up these polygamous communities. It, that we learned that in Short Creek, in the, uh, you know, in Short Creek, in the, mm-hmm. in the original raids back in, what was that, the 1930s? Yeah. Raiding that? Yeah. Yep, they took everybody away from each other, and they put them all in. Uh, put all the men in jail, and then as they released them, they all went right back to where they were. It's yep. just not something that the government can really fix. No, there's not a really good system, and this is uh, currently this is the problem that they have with human trafficking, is that you can uh, rescue a victim from a really bad situation, but it's the only situation that they know. So what do you do? You got to teach them some new way of living. You got to go through some sort of like. Uh, cult deprogramming system to uh, help people uh, get to a different mindset and then teach them how to, you know, keep an apartment, how to get a job, how to pay bills. You got to teach people how to do this. Otherwise, they just are going to go back to what they already know. Yeah, well, we're, we wish him the very best in his future life, and we hope that his uh, engagement and his newfound family works out very well for him. I hope so. It's a good success story on his part. You bet. You had the next article about young adults, Al? Yes. Uh, so, um, let's see. The, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have my, my, uh, my sheet up in front of me that gives me all the, the titles. Can you read off the title? And uh, This was published on, you betcha, uh, this was 2022 by Jennifer Graham. It was on the Deseret News. Perspective, yeah. young adults are losing their religion. Are their parents to blame? Yeah, that's one uh, one really significant thing about this article is this one's directly from the church, uh, from the uh, church's mouthpiece. And she talks about how something's going on with uh, people dropping off. And you got, you know, of course, the, the boomer generation's going to say, well, you know, kids these days and all that. But the question is uh, that she's finding is it's the people that have raised these kids that um, there's not that there's something missing there that was instilled in the previous generation uh, that the great the greatest generation gave to the boomers but the boomers are not passing that on to generation x or generation z and so you're getting a lot of uh, kids that um most significantly um it's the fathers so um mothers are uh in the household t- tend to be typically extremely religious and um, or or if they're, you know, they they seem to be the driving force behind the let's all get up on Sunday and go to church and, you know, let's get together for family prayer. Um, but the fathers will lead that. Um, and the fact that the father uh, has kind of a uh, what a, a minimized role in religion, it actually amplifies 
uh, the father's uh, impact on the children. And the reason being is that when you've got mom that just, you know, harping on it over and over and over again, kind of turns into a, 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 a dull drone in the background. But when dad speaks up and says, okay, kids, get in the car, we're going to church or come on downstairs, kids, it's time for family prayer. Then the kids know that he's serious because dad isn't always saying, Hey, come on, you know, we got to go into church. We got to get, go, we got to get for family prayer. Uh, so it's a really significant uh, thing to see that um, this is just the way that these kids are raised as they're, um, they're dropping off because dads aren't uh, really enforcing it. And, you know, uh, moms are uh, just letting them find, you know, you don't have to say your prayers before you go to bed. Just, you know, we'll tell you a bedtime story and then off you go or, or sort of things. And uh, so kids are growing up with a detached sense of uh, uh, with a detachment to their religion where it's easier to walk away uh, in later years. And maybe there's not as much shame in our modern culture uh, for leaving a religion as there used to be. It used to be, hey, we are Catholic. We don't leave. Even if you stop believing, you're still a Catholic. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, and the article brings up, it says that when it comes to Generation Z, there's a lot of factors at play that that lead to people becoming um, less church going and more cynical. And that's the pressure of extracurricular activities and Sunday sports that are increasingly seen as necessary in order to be accepted to prestigious universities. You know, Al, do you think that the United States is eventually going to end up like Europe? You know, Europe was a generation ahead of the United States when it comes to hollowing out those old cathedrals and um, the lack of religiosity. And do you think the United States is eventually going to turn into a Europe? Uh, I think that... (laughs) I I think that's certainly a possibility. uh, With the way that... um, the way this is going, uh, you know, it's it, it's getting to the point where you've got a, a select group of people that are still harping on, hey, it's time to get going back to church. You know, we need a time for revival or we need to, you know, get some religion in our lives. The kids need to, to come to Jesus and, find, you know, find this religion again. Um, and there's always going to be groups like that. But I think that one of the things that we run into is you've got uh, fanatics and fanatics uh, will always give, uh, will always give a religion a bad name. Um, And, you know, we'll talk about uh, this later with the, under the banner of heaven depiction, because the Lafferty, the Lafferty family was definitely fanatics. And you'll get little uh, groups within all kinds of religions that are just real fanatical. They get some real retrenched ideas. They get some real uh, archaic mindsets. And, uh, boy, they, they'll, they, they just tend to give religion a bad name. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that, Al. Let me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me take one small issue with that. We all know that sure. atheism, agnosticism is on the rise. And it has been ever since polls have started tracking. Christianity is on the decline. Atheism, agnosticism is on the rise. But you said that fanatics give religion a bad name. Therefore, it might lead to less people joining it. But Islam is as strong as ever. And when Mm -hmm. it comes to fanaticism and dogmaticism and suicide bombers and terrorists, you you seem to have a home there, don't they? (laughs) 
Yeah, you don't need to look farther than Islam. So if you're saying, well, fanaticism leads to erosion of faith, if I bring up Islam, that is not the case. Fanaticism, in fact, may be leading to more people um, joining Islam and staying strong in Islam. You make a really good point there, Divas. So I, I'm not an expert on this subject, that's for sure. So I don't know what the reason is behind, but especially as this is coming from the Deseret News. And um, we are definitely seeing, especially with Generation Z, um, a lack of religiosity, a lack of faith. You know, some of the leaked numbers talked about who, uh, what percentage of people go on full-time missions. Yeah. Before, that is one of the biggest indicators for the strength of the church. And <clears throat> peak of, you know, Mormon stronghold, which I would put peg at the middle of the 1990s, mm-hmm. you were seeing two-thirds of Born in the Covenant boys yeah. go on full-time missions. Mm-hmm. And data suggests that that number now is down to only one-third. Oh, really? Yeah. In fact, you can figure out, it's kind of complicated, but if you take the total percent, if you take the total number of members of the church, mm-hmm. and then you just divide it by the active missionary force, you can figure out the percentage of people who are currently on a full-time mission. Yeah. And that peaked, like I said, at, I believe it was 0.6% of the church was on a mission in the 90s. Yeah. So, you know, now that number is 0.3 percent. Half of the people going on missions in the 90s are going on missions now. And that confirms what I said about two thirds of boys going on missions. Now it's down to one third. Yeah. We're we're seeing an erosion. We're seeing a lack of, of, you know, religiosity. We're seeing a lack of people saying that church attendance is very important to them. Mm -hmm. And I don't see anything that is going to stop this slide from happening in the near future. Well, the, the church has already taken the measures of pushing uh, missionary work very heavily. Uh, they're uh, the the stand or uh, yeah, the stance that they've had the bishops take is strongly encourage every young man to serve a mission. Um, you know, I I don't know that they encourage young women as much, but they are certainly not turning away any young women that want to serve. And um, I think that young women by nature just it seems to be the way that um uh the feminine role in the church goes is that they really do their best to be all that they can be in the church and so you got a lot of young women that are voluntarily serving missions um as as soon as they can uh young men doesn't seem to be the case but boy the church is really pushing for uh, senior couple missionaries as well yeah I, i now in our last general conference you saw a big push, especially from President Nelson and the first presidency. He said, mm-hmm. all boys, this is a priesthood responsibility mm-hmm. going on a mission. They, they really pushed that, which, by the way, the irony of that is President Nelson go on a mission? No. Did President yeah. Oates go on a mission? No. Did President Iron go on a mission? No. So guess who they had to pass the baton all the way down to Elder Ballard because he's the highest person yeah. who had a mission. So, yeah. And his, his mission was back in, uh, what, probably the, the 60s, maybe the 50s? I'm not sure. So it's, it's a little bit ironic that yeah. I, that we're going to be pushing missions so hard when the top folks are not exactly leading from the front in this regard. Yeah. <laughs> do as I say, don't do as I do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, now our next article is one that is really making And this is BYU student reveals rainbow flag under graduation gown in protest of schools, LGBTQ policies. 
This is Jillian Orr hopes other students at BYU University who are hiding their sexual orientation will feel less alone. This was published on April 25th, 2022 by Amy Ely. Mm -hmm. So um, she walked across the graduation stage and Mm -hmm. underneath her robes, she had sewn in by her sister um, a gay flag, uh, a a gay color so that when across the stage in the Marriott Center at BYU Provo campus, right as the camera went on her for to hand her her diploma, she opened up her coat and it revealed, like Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat, it revealed her uh, gay pride, I don't know. Uh, is that the, a, rainbow, the rainbow flag. The rainbow flag. I, I, people don't like the term gay pride, but mm-hmm. yeah, a peak of her rainbow flag. And she was a psychology major. And uh, I watched her three-hour Mormon Stories episode here. But can, wh- what do you think of this, uh, Al? I, w- I want to hear your thoughts on this first. Oh, boy. I've got, I've got some, some conflicting thoughts on this. Me too. Uh, you know, because on the one hand, yeah, I am very much in uh, support of the LGBTQ community. I want uh, people to be treated fairly and equally. Um, and especially with regards to institutions like BYU and the LDS Church, I think that um, they've been extremely unfair in the way that they've dealt with uh, people from the LGBTQ community. Um, but on the other hand, everybody knows that. Every student going into BYU knows that. So, okay, why, but, yeah. but let me let me stop you right there and ask you: Jillian didn't really realize that she was gay until she was a student. You know, yeah. Hey, you signed the honor code Mm -hmm. that, you know, no gay activities, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. When people don't even haven't even come to grips with their sexuality yet. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I believe that she uh, obeyed the honor code. I believe that there wasn't any uh, nefarious activity on her part that uh, she abided by the standards that BYU expects. It's not really that difficult to abide by the honor code, but she, you know, this kind, this kind of stance, um, well, she, she certainly used the platform that she had uh, during the time that she had it to make her statement. So um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe this is her way of trying to be a Nephi to her generation of, uh, you know, standing up for what she believes is right. Um you know, instilling that kind of uh, primary lesson in kids sometimes can backfire on you when what they think is right is not what you think is right. Well, Al, you said it's not that hard to live the honor code, but it is harder if you're LGBTQ because you can't even go out on a date with someone. True. And uh, dating is very much a part of life, especially a part of BYU culture. Um, It's expected that there will be dating, formal dating, while you're in college. Yes. And if she, yeah, if she's not attracted to boys, then any boys that ask her out on a date are at worst going to get turned down. Now, she, <laughs> she is bisexual, uh, by the way. And so okay. she's been interviewed by every single major news organization is just coming and flocking to her. She mm-hmm. details in her TikTok a homophobic assignment that she was required to go through, which talked about as a psychology major, it was a multiple choice quiz. And this is all in our show notes. It was a multiple choice quiz on what you should do if you encounter someone who's LGBTQ. One of the answers said that you should just love them and support them in whatever they do in their life. And that answer was wrong. 
come in. It was actually that you're supposed to uh, try to basically try to convince them to live the gospel plan. And she, yeah. that was a serious problem for her. Now, look, everything that she stands for in her interview and in her article, Al, that I read, I agree mm -hmm. with 100%. I've got no problem. Not only do I not have any problem, I applaud her in on what she's trying to do. She's trying to reform the institution and mm -hmm. so that we can be able to live an authentic life. I champion that, and I think that's a great thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I need you to tell me, am I wrong in my assessment if I liken her to Colin Kaepernick? I know this is okay. – hear me out. Colin okay. Kaepernick was the San Francisco 49er quarterback who – protested the national anthem by taking a knee and he was doing that in support of black lives matter and police brutality and systemic racism and um, you know we need reformation uh, at the national level these were all goals that i 100 percent agreed with colin kaepernick, uh, colin kaepernick on and i liken these two to each other because it's like you're taking an issue that everyone wants to support you in but you're doing it in a platform that is really not conducive to that. I mean, tell me if I'm way off on this, but okay, so Jillian goes across, she flashes the, her, her, her flag. The next student comes up and he flashes his, and it's PETA saying, BYU, stop serving meat. Meat is, mur meat is murder. We should all go vegetarian. Okay. The next student gets up and he flashes his and it's anti-gun control. It's got Columbine and it's got Sandy Hook and it says, we need to stop guns. The next student gets up and the next one, and pretty soon, that this, this is completely, um, I mean, isn't that graduation, Al, help me out here. Isn't it graduation that says, hey, we're all different, but we're going to bury those differences and support the institution that we were a part of? Um, am I just completely crazy? I don't think you're completely crazy at all. I think that's a really good argument. I think that there's good arguments on both sides. I think that the analogy of uh, Colin Kaepernick is um, a really good analogy um, or comparison in that um, the the way that the national anthem uh, hits for uh, black people that have heard the all of the words to the national anthem and not just the first verse. I mean, the first verse is really patriotic, really tame. But when it comes to some of the later verses, there's things that uh, can be upsetting to uh, various communities uh, because this country um, was, I mean, this country was founded by slave owners. This yeah. was, uh, you know, slavery. When, when we talk about the home of the free and the land or the land of the free and the home of the brave, um, <laughs> for a lot of those people, uh, freedom was, well, for a lot of those people, freedom's still not completely there. At least equality's still not completely there. Uh, freedom was another 80 years away. Well, I guess uh, it, it, he he wrote that during the War of eighteen twelve, so it, it was you know more like fifty years away. But even so, it was uh, you know it, it's I can understand the Colin Kaepernick protest and uh, you know the Black Lives Matter movement. I can understand that um, to an extent, but it also doesn't uh, really tackle some of the bigger issues. The fact that um, you know uh, there's far more people murdered by uh, their fellow uh, black people than by white police. And uh, so I think that, you know, it is important to keep perspective of what the real, where the real problem lies. And I think systemically um, we've, we've 
gotta figure out some look at the broader picture i guess so when it comes to graduation and the lgbtq community you're right graduation is a time to give honor to the student who put in the hard work and the university the institution that uh, helped them gain the education that they got um i guess uh on the flip side i think that there's something uh, there's a bigger problem with a psychology an accredited psychology department telling uh, students that rather than be supportive of people who have problems or are different than you or have a different belief system, they're teaching, they're telling their students that it's far more important to encourage people to uh, conform to your belief system. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I just don't look, I've been an adjunct faculty member at a mm-hmm. many institutions, many of them. And mm-hmm. what, what a lot of people don't realize is that when it comes to going to graduation, a lot of times the full-time faculty members, they don't even show up because they're on salary. And they. So what the school does is they pay the adjunct faculty members to come and don the robes so it looks like you have support. So yeah. I've been a lot of these things before. And I just look at a graduation as a time to come together. Mm-hmm. Not a time to be divisive yeah. and, and point out critical flaws in the school. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yes, BYU needs serious reformation on this issue. I agree with her platform 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kaepernick's platform, 100%. There's just mm-hmm. a time and a place to raise issues. And if you're going to allow her to have this mini protest, then what's the next? We're going to have PETA. Mm-hmm. We're going to have everybody else is going to bring up their little pet peeve on stage. Mm-hmm. When does it end? Uh, yeah. yeah just, you're, you're absolutely right. Not every platform is an opportunity to go and get your message out there. Right. Now, you also, I just want to close a couple last things. You remember back in 2019, the BYU valedictorian came out as gay in his that's right Mm -hmm. right and it was matt easton so people are talking about that now i think that it's different for a couple of reasons and that the valedictorian is asked to provide comments and those of a personal nature Mm -hmm. obviously they will be of a personal nature so when he comes out that for me is totally different than jillian orr's i'm much more sympathetic to how matt easton came out than how Jillian Orr came out. Mm-hmm. I know that's a small distinction, and I guess I'm quibbling here, but uh, I believe there's a big difference. By the way, uh, according to Jillian, Matt Easton's comments saying that he was going to come out, his speech was pre-approved by BYU leadership. So when Elder mm-hmm. Holland then came later on, you might remember that Elder Holland came in and criticized Matt Easton and mm-hmm. said that his comments um, were inappropriate. Mm-hmm. I find that if Matt Easton's comments about coming out as gay as a valedictorian, then Elder mm-hmm. Holland should have no place to come in and criticize him in any way afterwards. True. Um, president Holland hasn't been, or uh, like, well, I guess we can call him President Holland, but he hasn't been president of BYU uh, for 30 years. So, yeah, um, <laughs> I, I think that uh, he, he's, I, I agree with you. He's in the wrong. And uh, when you give a valedictorian his moment, uh, that's his time. And they approve the speech. Yeah. All right. Okay. So I just want to make sure I'm not crazy. So I'm going to continue um, thinking in my small way that I'm right. Mm -hmm. 
you. But, you know, that brings us up to the next article, which says that, you know, the percentage of people at BYU who, who are gay um, is really on the rise. Can you mm-hmm. walk us through that information now? Certainly. Uh, this one comes uh, straight out of BYU's own Daily Universe newspaper. And uh, they've gone through and uh, given a poll. I, I believe this was an anonymous poll, and, uh, and it should be, uh, because um, this is asking some very sensitive information of students that have a lot on the line. Um, so you have at 8% of students at BYU um, identify as something other than hetero cisgender. So uh, LGBTQ, you've got 8%. So eight out of 100 kids that are walking around BYU campus are non-traditional, should we say? I, I, I'm not sure the, uh, the, the proper word for this, but they are of the LGBTQ persuade, persuasion. No, they identify as LGBTQ. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a significant number. Um, I remember uh, during my time uh, in college and my studies of the of the LGBTQ community that the numbers were only, I believe, three percent of people were uh, of some sort of LGBTQ um, identification. But uh, for eight percent, I'm not sure if that's um, if it's just that there's a concentration of uh, people at BYU or if this is maybe more people are feeling more and more comfortable coming out. But even so, there's also going to be some margin of error in the uh, information gathering. Uh, anybody that's taken statistics will know that. So there's going to be a deviation that may be one or two percent or or even more, maybe uh, people that don't feel comfortable even on, in an anonymous uh survey giving that kind of personal information out yeah so So with thirty-six thousand students on campus if eight percent of them are identifying as lgbtq you're talking about three thousand students here that's a whole stake yeah you know and from the article i just want to quote a little bit it says there's a lot of focus in the church at byu which is great Mm -hmm. the proclamation on the family there have been some remarks where i don't really feel super included love or respected Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, quote, I just believe in mutual respect. I signed up for the honor code when I came to BYU and I'm going to have respect for the honor code. Hopefully they can have respect for me. End quote. And I think he might be of, uh, referencing the Elder Holland's musket fire talk, which okay. really, um, really bothered a lot of uh, Latter-day Saints and especially mm-hmm. those who had either loved ones or they themselves were LGBTQ and especially those who were at BYU who yeah. were LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that was a very, very troubling talk. So, you know, and this goes with Jillian Orr. We're, we're, we're supporting all of these people. Um, and uh, I just I just think that there's a right way to go about it. There is. Um, in England, they have uh, Hyde Park Corner. And uh, that's where anybody can go and, uh, and speak about whatever it is that they have to talk about. But that's what we need uh, here in the United States somewhere is we need a Hyde Park Corner where people can come and say whatever the heck they want. They can debate with each other. They can get their ideas out to be heard. Very well. Now, we're almost up to our feature news article, which was the Under the Banner of Heaven. But, mm-hmm. um, and in those same vein, you had an article from Cache Valley Daily about the Mountain Meadow Massacre, right? Yeah, I do. Um, this one is, so on the north end of, uh, of Mormondom, we've got the uh, 
Cache Valley, Utah. It's uh, home to Utah State University. Um, the uh, Logan is there. There's a town just south of Logan um, on the south end of the valley called Paradise. And this was actually uh, written as an opinion piece, but I follow Cache Valley Daily rather closely. Um, I was born in Cache Valley, so I you know have some ties there. And this, uh, the author of this, uh, he is very pro Mormon, and yet this article, he's very he's as honest and open about the church's involvement with the Mountain Meadows massacre as I've ever seen anybody. It's written by Mark Enzyme, and um, let's see, I think I think he published it on Monday this last week. Uh, he. Um, yeah, he said that the ch- that church members and he it kind of goes the direction of well, church members took it upon themselves to go and murder the Fancher party uh, down in Mountain Meadows. Uh, anybody that doesn't know the story of the Mountain Meadows massacre, um, I'm sure that you're going to be learning about it very much in the coming uh, future because this is uh, part of that under the banner of heaven movie um, is the violent history of Mormonism. But the, he he acknowledged that it was a very violent thing. It was very wrong. Um, members of the the Mormon Church um, and the Danite uh, clan, which the Danites was basically uh, the Mormon army um, when Brigham Young first came to Utah, and that was kind of their militia that they set up was the Danites to go about and you know be the the army for for the Mormons. Um, a select number of them went down to Cedar City and uh, headed off the Fancher Party uh, just west of there in Mountain Meadows. And uh, they laid siege to them for a few days, dressed as Paiute Indians. And um, they really tried to uh, paint the uh, Paiutes as the, as the villains in this, um, claiming that the... Uh, that the Fancher party had poisoned the water sources for the Paiutes. And so this was an act of revenge from the Paiutes. Uh, but this, uh, there's several children that survived this, that, um, they said, well, they were, uh, they were Indian people and then they washed off their skin and then they were white people. So it, it doesn't seem like the Paiutes actually had any involvement in that, but, um, you know, there, there might've been, uh, there, there's still a lot of mystery around it. Um, a couple of significant things that I like to point out about mountain meadows is that, um, they let 17 children under the age of eight survive, um, at Hans mill, uh, one of the worst, uh, massacres during the, uh, Mormon war in Missouri, 17 people were killed um, and they were armed and inside this blacksmith shop, but 17 people uh, were killed at Hans mill. So by comparison, uh, 120 people were killed at mountain meadows. They only let 17 uh, children live. And uh, so this was really a brutal massacre. Why do you think we're still talking? Why is this still making news articles? You know, what, that, Mountain Meadows was in, was in like what, 1855? It actually happened um, September 11th of all days, September 11th, 1857. Um, and we're talking about it now because uh, there's been so, so much denial um, of the church that, oh, that there's ever been any 
violence in its history, that the church has always been a peace-loving, peacekeeping people. So the tie to Cache Valley, um, I, I guess before I jump too heavy into into that, I need to, you know, I get to the meat of this article. There's a barn down in Paradise that um, this gentleman uh, was sent from Cedar City, relocated up to Paradise, uh, basically just trying to hide the evidence. He uh, came up here with a wagon from the Fancher party and took the wagon apart and uh, took the, the steel pieces off of that wagon. You know, these old wagons for crossing the plains were really heavy duty, built with a ton of steel. So he took all that metal and reworked it and made uh, all these uh, fittings and pieces for his barn. And so a piece of that uh, history is permanently built into this barn down in paradise. Um, I've gone for drives around the state and, you know, looked for interesting things. I haven't seen this barn. There's pictures of this barn, but I guess it's somewhere over on the West side of the Valley that I haven't been to, but next time I get up there, I'll, uh, I'll take a look and see if I can find this barn that's got pieces of the Fancher party uh, history in there. Um, but the, the, the history of violence with, um, with the church uh, it keeps creeping up and, you know, for people saying, oh, the church, you know, was always been the victims and it's always, you know, suffered persecution. Um, there's been persecution, sure. Uh, but I, I don't think it's been as one-sided as a lot of the LDS people would like to believe it was that, um, you know, the, the Mormon war in Missouri, where the, uh, extermination order was given by governor Boggs and that extermination order was only repealed uh, a few years ago, in fact. Um, but yeah, it was, it was actually passed as legislation that, hey, the Mormons need to, they're causing so much problems for us here in Missouri that we, they need to be driven from the state. And if they won't leave, exterminate them. Um, well, actually, the wording from that comes from uh, a, a speech that was given by Sidney Rignan. Uh, and he, he gave it beforehand saying, well, you know, this is the land of our inheritance. We need to drive the Gentiles out. And if they won't leave, we need to exterminate them. But uh, yeah, so that wording, uh, it was significant that Governor Boggs chose the wording that he did uh, because it was a response to wording of a speech where the Mormons declared war. Uh, that There was a lot of atrocities on both sides. You know, it's not like this was a, a peaceful time in church history. The uh, 1840s was uh, really gross, uh, especially when they were making that move from Missouri to Nauvoo. Yeah, I mean, that's how Joseph Smith ended up in Liberty Jail was from the Mormon War and the atrocities that were committed from both sides. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing to me that these articles still keep coming up. This is an issue that just it won't go away. And yeah. it's just... You know, it's one of those things. And that, that absolutely takes us into our feature article for the yep. week, which is the Under the Banner of Heaven. Uh, and this is from uh, published on April 26, 2022. And this is on Showbiz Cheat Sheet. And it says, Andrew Garfield talks Mormonism's beauty and terrible problems ahead of Under the Banner of Heaven's premiere. So Andrew Garfield, he's known for his blockbuster roles. And he starred in Amazing, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man. And also he was Oscar nominated for some of his works. And they released, this is a miniseries that is a 
under FX and it's being released and streamed on Hulu. And they released the first two episodes of it. And it basically it tells the true story of a Mormon police officer who's played by Garfield as he investigates the murder of a young mother and her baby in the Salt Lake City, Utah area. And Andrew Garfield in the article says, quote, I loved the book. And he's speaking of the actual book that this miniseries is based on, which was John Krakauer's book, mm-hmm. which was published in 20, uh, 2003. John Krakauer, author of Under the Banner of Heaven, A Story of Violent Faith, published in uh, Doubleday in 2003. And Andrew Garfield says that he's obsessed by the book. Quote, I found it to be so illuminating about a subject that I'm fascinated with. How do men... Uh, excuse me, about how do men get to the place of doing terrible, evil things and justify it using God as a shield? So the book, the title of the book is actually, the title of the book is drawn from an 1880 address by the third president of the church, John Taylor. And it is defending the practice of plural marriage. And it basically said, quote, God is greater than the United States. And when the government conflicts with heaven, we will be ranged under the banner of heaven against the government. Now, I did spend the week. Uh, I listened to a lot. of I listened to the book on tape and it was actually read by the author himself, John Krakauer. And I also read some of the interviews that Krakauer did with um, uh, Dustin Lance Black, who is the producer of the FX series. I do have a couple of questions for you, Al. Do you think that the book, and by extension, is this anti-Mormon? It doesn't seem to be. I, <clears throat> according to uh, John Krakauer, uh, he's he doesn't have any axe to grind. He's an investigative uh, author, so and he he very much tries to immerse himself as much as he can in uh, interest in in his subject matter. Uh, he wrote one, I think it's called into thin air about, a um, climbing Everest. And they actually made that one into a movie called Everest. Um, a few years back, I saw that one in the theater and, um, boy, it was, uh, yeah, where he, he actually went to, to try and climb Everest himself. And he was there along with this uh, party of people that they were, you know, really determined to, to get to the top and, things went wrong and there was a really uh, horrible disaster that came about from that. John Krakauer survived uh, because he, he turned back in time, but uh, there was several lives lost, but John Krakauer, he's not the type of person that has any ax to grind. He just goes for the history, goes for the research and then lays it out there as it is. Uh, okay. If you say that the book is not anti-Mormon, I don't think that we can say that the book then is pro-Mormon that much. I think we can definitely agree on yeah, it's definitely not pro-Mormon, but I wouldn't consider it to be anti-Mormon. The guy's not, uh, he he may be pointing out that, well, Mormonism does come from a violent history, or it does have a violent history, but it's not inherently uh, evil, I, I guess. Right. I mean, that was one of the questions that is basically posed by the book is, is religion inherently dangerous? Because you're abdicating, religion teaches you generally that you abdicate your moral authority to um, a supernatural force. And that, that, that is what leads, can lead to violence and atrocities, just like you were mentioning with the Mountain Meadow Massacre. Now, the producer of the show is Dustin Lance Black, and he definitely is a raised Latter-day Saint. In fact, one of the articles that I read said that the producer of the show, Dustin Lance Black, is the most powerful ex-Mormon in the world. Mm-hmm. And wow. I'm 
I'm actually thinking about it, and I am trying to think who is the most powerful Black Mormon in the world, and I can't think of anybody who is more powerful than him. I don't know. Can you think of one? Um, I think Tom Hanks was raised LDS. I know that Tom Hanks did the uh, um, was the creator of the Big Love series. No, but, that, and, no and that, that's Big Dustin Lance Black as well. Big Love. Right. He was a writer on that. Um, but that's probably the closest that I could think of. Um, but I would say even if even if we grant that Tom Hanks is a Latter-day Saint was raised, I don't know if he was, but let us assume that he is. He never speaks about the matter, so I wouldn't grant him much power. Exactly. So it, it doesn't – what the work that he may be doing um, about, you know, getting the, the honest history of the church out there is not nearly so – um, what clearly defined as Mr. Black? Uh, he's uh, Dustin Black has a very uh, clear stance here that he he <laughs> understands the history of the Mormon Church. He wants everybody to understand that history. Yeah, and one of the articles I read it said this is from Black quote. I think I took <clears throat> a different view of the book, meaning the Under the Banner of Heaven, <laughs> and I bet a lot of Mormons did as well. The PR department of the Mormon Church has their response, but there are many Mormons who I would be willing to bet read John's book and had that lightning strike to their heart of, quote, I'm going to listen to my doubt for a minute. That hurt is uncomfortable, but it's a growing pain, end quote. So the church did, back in 2003, after the Under the Banner of Heaven was released, they did, um, through the PR department, and you can still find it on the church's website today under newsroom.churchofjesuschrist.org slash Church's response to John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven, the church gave an official response to this book, which seems unprecedented. There's been a lot of, quote, anti-Mormon, end quote, books and articles and things put out over the years. Almost none of them get an official response. What made this one day? Uh, this one directly went uh, towards the history of the Mormon church. Um, this one, you know, there, there's been plenty of books, as you said, that have been published over the years that the church doesn't even acknowledge. But this one, uh, by a best-selling author, uh, really going after the history of the Mormon church, and not just the history of the Mormon church back in um, New York, Pennsylvania, Kirtland, to Nauvoo. This is a history of Utah Mormonism, and a very a sinister event that happened. This was something that happened uh, that the church officially has refused to accept any responsibility for, refused to apologize for. Um, Elder Oaks at the time, uh, now President Oaks, said that we don't uh, acknowledge any uh, guilt. Um, we are sorry that it happened, but we it don't apologize for it. There was profound, I yeah. believe the term was profound sadness. Yeah, profound sadness, yeah. Uh, and that's about as far as you got. So no. Desert the News also responded to, um, responded, and they said, quote, imagine Hollywood spending millions of dollars to produce a series focusing negative attention on a minority faith in America and then deciding not to integrate their voices into the writing or production, end quote. So the Hulu people, they didn't reach out to the church. The church... The church has the historians. The church has the documents. The, mm -hmm. These guys did not reach out to the church in any way, shape, or form to help them with that. Mm -hmm. One would think if you were doing, if I was doing a show on, I don't know, Scientology or some other place, that I might mm -hmm. want to reach out and say, you know, take a look at this script. What do you think? Or am I just yeah. 
that that's probably fair. That, that's probably a, a fair uh, way to approach it. Um, but for the church to make a kind of statement like that, um, what about the TV series Waco that came out last year? I mean, it, it's not like they're like Hollywood hasn't uh, or the Jonestown um, massacre. This <laughs> Hollywood's not uh, just picking on the Mormons. They're, you know, they're going after all these strange little uh, places that have gotten a lot of people killed. Yeah. So when I was reading the book, <clears throat> I noticed that there are some basic fundamental errors in church history that seem to be very rudimentary, Al. I mean, some embarrassing stuff. Yeah. And it really undercuts the message of the book when you can't get some of the things correct. I mean, one of the biggest things for me is he's reading, the author is reading this book and he mm -hmm. comes along and he says, Maroni, as in Moroni, but he said Maroni. Mm -hmm. It's just a simple error. It's just absolutely glaring that yeah. when you can't even say the name of Moroni correctly, it's very difficult for me to take the rest of your work seriously. And that's just not only the error. So the church, they, um, uh, uh, they had Turley, the uh, head of the church history department, uh, gave some of the response, uh, gave some of the response. And it said, uh, Turley said the crack hours book is just a condemnation of religion generally. And Turley just goes through the book and he just line by line, just zips in these, this is like shooting fish in a barrel for him. If I can find the church historian can find them. And it just, it really under, it just, it really undercuts the message of the book for me. Um, when you can't get some of the basic facts, right. Or even pronunciations, right. Yeah. Uh on the other side of that argument, I would say that um, it is a written name um, more than it's spoken. So when it comes to people like, you know, in um, 1830s, um, the world, <laughs> or say 1830s England, um, you got a bunch of missionaries going and handing out these books or selling these books to uh, people, um, you know, trying to convince them that there's another testament of jesus christ that's out there and they're coming across that name uh for the first time and they're coming across you know uh lehi is it lehi how's it pronounced is it pronounced nephi is it nephi nephi how do you pronounce it and so a lot of people i think you can uh, be doing the best that you can when it comes to uh the written form in this day and age though with uh, john krakauer um doing even a rudimentary uh, bit of research, you'd think he would talk to at least some sort of Mormon that would give him the proper pronunciation of these words. Yeah, I agree also with what Turley said. He said that Krakauer's book is the lead, the hypothesis for Krakauer's book is basically faith, quote, faith is the very antithesis of reason. In other words, faith and reason cannot coexist agree with what Turley said about Krakauer's book, that he's trying to make it seem like if you have faith in any religion whatsoever, you are very, and Mormonism in particular, you are susceptible to um, evil influences and uh, corruption of faith. And, um, you know, as Joseph Smith said, you know, people who suppose that they have even just a little bit of power immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that the church on their official website is going after a book kind of like apologists normally do. Mm -hmm. You know, I also, Al, do you agree with this statement? Let me ask you this. Do you, you can get an evil person to do something good, but to get a good person to do something evil, that takes religion. Do you agree with that? 
Um, you know, to an extent, I I would say yes. Um, and the does it take religion? Um, I don't know. I okay. I I don't know that it takes religion to get a good person to do something evil. Um, I I don't know how many times I've heard it uh, around me in conversations where, you know, mostly it's from young men. But saying, oh, if I wasn't a member of a church, if I wasn't LDS, I would do this, I would do that. And then I have to point out, well, so the only thing that keeps you from, you know, going out and getting, you know, smashed and drunk on a Friday night is the fact that two late, two days later you have to go to church. And, uh, you know, just to, to point out things like that, I, you know, as a non-LDS myself, I don't get wrecked on a on Friday night. I, I don't... Uh, drink it at all really um but i also don't see any evil in in imbibing uh then again you know uh i think it yeah it's Penn Jillette, a very outspoken atheist who made the point that i he has raped and murdered everybody that he ever would like to rape and murder and the answer is zero right. uh yeah because he's he, he just doesn't want to harm to do harm to other people innately he just doesn't want to do that doesn't want to be that kind of a person um does it take religion to convince people to do that well that this is where it gets back to the mountain meadows massacre was it people's religion that convinced them to commit these atrocities uh murder and i believe that there was some rape that occurred at the time but uh you know these are these atrocities uh, you know is it, is this because of religion or is this something that these people would have done themselves? I don't know. I, I, they said that the guy that uh, took this wagon up to uh, to paradise in that last article, that he felt so much remorse uh, over it and uh, that he, he never wanted to talk about it for the rest of his life. Um, and so, you know, there might be that aspect of it at, at the same time. I don't think he was innocent, but his religious beliefs definitely led him to commit things that he was, um, he felt guilt over for the rest of his life. Uh, tough, tough, tough statement to respond to. Sorry. <laughs> well, um, you know, aren't safer by crime statistics? I mean, we can scientifically prove that modern Mormonism is actually safer than other religions. Just look at the crime rates in Utah Valley and compare them with somewhere else. I mean, it is difficult. Isn't it a difficult proposition to say Mormonism breeds dangerous persons? It, it leads to radicalism and it, it often corrupts people to become evil and uh, killers when we can prove through science that Mormon is, the Mormon communities are actually among the safest around. Um, well, ha have we proven that? I, I have to – I have a real problem with people uh, – and, and maybe this is a matter of my own ignorance, but it seems like when I go through the newspapers in Utah, there's a lot of headlines of, you know, this uh, person has been arrested for, you know, child molestation or having dealing in child pornography or this person's uh, been arrested for rape. This person's, you know, uh, got, you know, whatever. Uh, so, I mean, it happens. Crime does happen, but does it happen around here so uh, free, so infrequently around uh, 
you know, the state of Utah, that that's why it becomes uh, newsworthy, that it seems like every day there's something on the front page of some travesty being done, and not always by non-LDS people. I mean, a lot of times it's LDS people that are being booked on these charges. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think that the, 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 where there are high concentrations of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there's generally less mm-hmm. crime. I think you'll find some one-offs, but I think that that is a safe statement to make. I, I would hope so. I, I would hope that is. I just I don't know that it is as true as um, a lot of people would like to think it is, you know? Yeah, it's interesting also to me that Krakauer and also Black, they sit down side by side for this New York Times interviews. So they seem to be joined at the hip. They seem to be on um, mind. And they basically, this, it seems to me that the book is, is putting forth a proposition that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a cult. So, I mean, is, is the church a cult, Al? Um, my own opinion, yeah, it is. And uh, the reason why is because uh, it follows a charismatic leader, Joseph Smith. Um, the current leader of the church, I would say, is a charismatic, charismatic leader as well. And each one of them in between Joseph Smith and Russell M. Nelson has been a charismatic leader. Um, they embrace very specific teachings that uh, run counter to other religions, thereby making them uh, very special, very unique. Um, they follow the bite model. They, um, uh, the bite model being that, you know, they, the church will try to control your behavior, control the information that you uh, get, um, control your thinking and uh, control your emotions. Um, you know, and, and there's uh, definitely going to be people that will argue against each of those. But uh, my thing is, well, the church is telling you to cover your shoulders, only get one set of earrings if you're going to get ears pierced at all. Um, no piercings for men. Um, you know, uh, so when it comes to that sort of thing, uh, avoid swearing, uh, avoid eating and drinking certain things. So that's uh, controlling your behaviors as well. Don't uh, go reading certain books. Only get your information from uh, church-approved sources. So that's information. Uh, thoughts. Um, well, you know, if you have intrusive thoughts, you need to combat those and get rid of the, you know, thinking ill of the church or try to, you know, put things away. If it, if it doesn't make sense to you now, just, you know, trust in faith. And in the next world, uh, you'll have it all explained. It'll all make sense. So just, you know, shelf it away for now. And then emotions, well, you know, you're not supposed to uh, be angry with people. You're not supposed to uh, be aggressive or, um, you know, just be be nice, be happy, you know, stay pleasant. Um, So, I mean, it it really follows the bite model as far as I'm concerned. So I would say that the Mormon church is a cult, Um, a big one, sure, Uh, almost 17 million members. Um, But, yeah, I would I'd call it a cult. I personally don't find a lot of it seems like most of the things that you brought up that you have a charismatic leader that you have teachings that you restrict certain things that's seemingly true of almost all religions Buddha was sure. Buddha was a charismatic leader he wanted mm-hmm. you to control your thoughts he wanted to control your appetites and desires as well through fasting and other means he had specific teachings so it seems like if you 
using your criteria, almost any religion could be considered a cult. And that is why I personally not find it very valuable to label different religions as you're a cult, you're not a cult, because it seems to have a bad, um, it seems to have a bad connotation. And I don't think it is very valuable. That's just my own opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so the, that's pretty much it on the book. Now, when it comes to the uh, TV series, uh, did you watch the show, Al? Uh, the first two episodes that uh, I'm allowed to on Hulu. So now we'll just play it out every week going forward. <laughs> what did you think your uh, What did you think your reaction? This um, is the biggest LDS. This is the biggest you know um, show that has reached the mainstream from Hollywood perspective. Probably more people are watching this show about the church than maybe any show in the previous quite a while, all the way back to like. I don't know, 60 Minutes episode back on Mormons, Inc., you know? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a couple of uh, series that have come out, like uh, Murder Among the Mormons, about the, uh, uh, shoot, what was his name? Uh, Mark Hoffman. Mark Hoffman, there it is. <laughs> for heaven's sakes, I drew a blank for a second. Um, that one, uh, about a year ago, came out, and that one was compelling, but it wasn't, I don't think it was nearly as big of a deal as this one, um, because it wasn't based on... Uh, a novel or a, a book that had been written by John Krakauer. So, you know, this is a, a, a really big deal. Uh, prior to that, they also had, uh, what was it, abducted in plain sight about the uh, Mormon girl that her neighbor uh, ran off with her um, up in Pocatello, Idaho. And uh, so there's that. Um, that one, <laughs> have you seen that one? No, I haven't. I did watch Murder Among the Mormons. I found it to be absolutely compelling. I loved every minute. As soon as I started watching it, I completed the entire miniseries. So I'm going to be giving you my thoughts on the Banner of Heaven very soon. So when it comes to a show that maybe doesn't show the church in a very positive light, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Um, I just have a problem of whether it's actually a good show. Yeah, and and there's... I, it, that's a matter of taste. It really is because, you know, I've got a couple of friends that watched it and I said, so what did you think of it? And he's like, I just watched the first episode and I thought it was uh, very poorly made. And I thought, okay, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it, was, <laughs> I thought it was well made, but he's like, well, it's just, you know, the way that people were talking, that uh, the, the accents that they use, he's like, it was almost like some sort it's almost like they were trying to speak Canadian. You know, and uh, like just super, uh, you know, high toned and friendly. And I, I, I can understand that, you know, but I, I've also and that's been a matter of controversy uh, over the Internet as well as, you know, why are they talking like that? And some people are saying, well, uh, I grew, grew up in a Mormon community and that's how people talked, you know, not everyone, but certainly some people. And uh you know, the whole, um, it seems like they really tried to throw the church in there um, more than we would throw the church in today um, when it comes to these sorts of situations. Like the, Way more. Yeah. Like, I mean, he goes into, you, you've got a police officer in a, you know, very Mormon community, which is, you know, Utah County still, but uh, he's... He's, he's he goes right in. Like, the oh, you're a member of the church, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's quoting the doctrine and covenants in a police interrogation. Come yeah. on, mm-hmm. no. Yeah, 
it, it was uh, it, there, there's some of it that's not quite believable I uh, think, and, and, and would definitely play out as a cultish thing. I, I think you're using the word some, but I'm going to change that and say my opinion is that it's almost all. Now, I found someone who basically encapsulates my thoughts, and it's Jim Bennett. Um, and far be it for me to agree with Jim Bennett, but I respect Jim Bennett a lot. Um, he, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the CES letter, um, which was written by Jeremy Reynolds, which is a, mm-hmm. a faithful Mormon's quest to understand the gospel. Mm-hmm. Jim Bennett wrote the response to the CES letter, which has become the most popular response. So he's a very faithful member. So he tweeted out some replies, and I found myself agreeing with Jim Bennett. And he mm-hmm. said, right from the outset, we have problems. The little thing we see are Garfield's daughters wearing little house on the prairie prairie dresses, suggesting a level of familiar fundamentalism that is foreign to mainstream Mormons. Immediately, it's clear we're going to see a lot of lazy stereotypes that don't match the lived experiences of those on the inside. We see the Lapperties at a picnic in the episode, and the young girls and even the adult women are strangely attired, reinforcing the deliberate choice to paint Mormons as very weird. In fact, all of the Mormon cultural references are weird and jarring, even the small ones. When Garfield says that he's going to take the lead on an investigation and speaks to the subject, quote, Mormon to Mormon, end quote, he... It's unbelievable. I've never heard anyone say I'm going to speak to someone Mormon to Mormon. That's my editorial as well. I can, and Ben goes on, I can confidently say that as an active Mormon, I can't put my finger on what it is, but he has dialogue and it's forced. It's clunky. And he says, quote, the church vigorously discourages beards, end quote. And this is me speaking. That's when has the church vigorously discouraged beards? Never heard of that before. Jim uh, when he okay. heard- the the church vigorously discouraging beards, I guess, would probably that's that has more to do with style of the times. Because that, I mean, for heaven's sakes, let's look at Joseph F. Smith. I mean, exactly. The church has not yeah. vigorously discouraged beards. Now they have said that bishops were not supposed to have beards. That is hardly yeah. a vigorous discouragement. Mm-hmm. And then Bennett continues. I've got a lot to say on this. He bursts. Uh, the uh, Pyrie bursts in the room and starts quoting the Doctrine and Covenants from memory and barking questions about covenants and altars and temple recommends. And it just switches from awkward to laughable. Now, uh, I'm going to end the Jim. If you want to go see the rest of Jim Bennett's reply, I basically mm-hmm. agree with everything that he said. Now, I watched the first episode with my wife, mm-hmm. who's a very faithful member. And I'm going to tell you that I was extremely entertained for the first 45 minutes because yeah. I kept waiting for a laugh track. Yeah. I mean, it was so absurd. I'm seeing the opening shot of Under the Banner of Heaven, the first episode. And we're seeing the Provo Temple. We're seeing my neighborhood, Al, that I grew up in. Yeah. This is going to be great. These are good. This is going to be a show about where I grew up in and my people, and it's going to be great. I didn't recognize anything from anyone in that episode. The dialogue, the, the accents, the costumes, everything about it. It was like an alien watched some episodes of Studio C 1,000 years in the future and tried to shoot a show about it. Like, it's that far off. It's not even close. Well, I think one of the biggest... But, but, but you, you got to keep in mind, this is 1980s Utah, not uh, the 2000s. I grew up in 1980s Utah. I was yeah. born in the 70s. I grew and, up... And on Pioneer Day, do you see girls out playing in the yard uh, dressed up as Indians and wearing prairie dresses? Because uh, okay. that's the thing is he's out there. He's dressed up as a cowboy. His girls are dressed up in prairie dresses. So, I mean, that's not that far of a stretch in my mind. Yeah. Um, Some of the other stuff I'll go with you and say, yeah, this is uh, this is strange. 
the la- the dressing on the Lafferty's um, part, well, they're kind of a fringe uh, extreme element. So I can I can see a church that's you know, or or a, a family that considers themselves to be a pillar of the community um, trying to do their. I mean, <clears throat> Warren Jeffs did the exact same thing. It wasn't uh, until he took over from his father Rulon that they started wearing the prairie dresses with the uh, pompadour hairstyles and everything uh again it, so this is just you know you're going to get some people that uh are trying to be special are going to make some choices that are going to make them look weird to the rest of them yeah they ask uh they ask brenda and they say when they find out that she goes to byu and they say mm-hmm. do you abide by the byu honor code who talks like that that's just a perfect that's answer. that's weird <laughs> yeah. Every line of dialogue in this show was weird. I would, mm-hmm. I, I, the first forty-five minutes, I was entranced. Then I watched mm-hmm. the next fifteen and the next one, uh, hour, the second episode, and I'm going to tell you that this series is unwatchable. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just, I'm severely disappointed. <sighs> I'm really. Well, I'll tell you what I'm really impressed with. It's uh, the historical reenactments. So, uh, okay, up until this series, the uh, historical reenactments have all come from the Mormon church. There's not really been any uh, reenactments that have been portrayed that weren't coming from a, an LDS perspective. So this, uh, to, be, to make a reenactment with Joseph Smith and Emma um, and portraying them not as these, you know, uh, what um, floating in the air kind of angelic beings um but more is just down-to-earth people or what you know kids really are are like back in the 1800s um or to have let's see they they've got other ones where you know you've got the the goings on in kirtland and yeah that's uh the first enactment where they took joseph smith out to tar and feather him that they actually showed a doctor there to castrate him as well so yeah that was accurate, but not all of the flashbacks are accurate. Remember, there was a Joseph Smith flashback that makes no sense. It showed a prepubescent Joseph wooing a prepubescent Emma with tales of his visions of God. They were yeah. both looked like they were 14. Unfortunately, they didn't meet until Joseph was like 19. Yeah. So the flashbacks are accurate. Some of them are not accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that is a big problem. Like that one, that one really, <laughs> that, that, that one, I mean, Seeing him interact with her, I enjoyed. I just think that they probably should have picked a couple actors that looked a bit older. Right. I mean, I, I could I could see that happening um, later on in life. You know, when yeah. he did when he did meet her. You know, when he was nineteen, but not uh, I. But that conversation did not happen when he was fourteen years old. He had no idea who she was right. when he was fourteen. <laughs> Like everything just has a little bit off. They just could not get the book accurate and they could not get the series accurate. If you just have somebody, I'm not the most informed member, but if I had watched this ahead of time or looked at the script, I could have helped them make a real show. So Mm -hmm. honestly, what I think that they do is that they want to have controversy. Nobody is going to talk about the show if -hmm. it's accurate. So it's like they're putting in this crazy crap that they know is not accurate in order to stir up controversy so that people will get talking about it. And I guess it worked, but it leaves me wanting. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah, it's, uh, 
I found it still entertaining and I, I will watch the rest of it. Um, I think that, um, you know, true to my promise to my LD, my LDS uh, listeners out there, I'm going to tell you, this probably isn't the show for you. You might be interested in watching the first episode, but by the time you get to the second episode, there will be some nudity. There will be the garments coming off that you're going to be uncomfortable with. So uh, I, I would, you, you can give it a try. I don't think you'd find anything that will uh, hurt your feelings in the first episode. But by the time you get to the second episode, I think you'll have lost interest altogether based off of the things that we've already discussed here, Dives. And some of the other biggest problems with the book and the show is that they do not spend enough time showing that the who were excommunicated in, I believe, 1982 were mm-hmm. not Mormons when they committed these murders. The book That's right. That clear, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb that says that the show is not going to make it clear either. So they're trying to paint with a broad brush here that the Lafferty's are representing uh, members of the church as a whole, and it's just mm-hmm. it, from the history errors to the language errors to the um, misrepresenting who's a member and who's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how many strikes that you get, but um, you strike and you're out. Well, he, he does need to put more uh, emphasis on that. Um, I read several articles about this whole uh, ordeal um, earlier this week. And uh, having read the articles, there's some things that I understand about it, you know, re- with regards to the Lafferty brothers being excommunicated prior to this uh, occurrence. And just how uh, how cultish the Lafferty's themselves were. I mean, it's, it, it not only did they go from uh, the mainstream LDS church to uh, fundamental uh, Mormonism, but then they branched off from fundamental Mormonism or the FLDS uh, polygamist uh, way of life and started their own thing called the school of the prophets. And I, that it hasn't been clear about that, but then again, we aren't, we aren't really that far along in the telling of the story about the Lafferty's. They're just, there's a lot of information still to be given and we can only, <laughs> We can only wait until the end of the show before we say, well, they didn't give us that, but the, uh, they sure as heck better give us that sometime between now and the end of the series. Okay. Uh, Jim Bennett's last tweet on this. He said, the show is significant misrepresentation of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and it demonstrates how fast and loose the showrunners are willing to play with the historical record. This series has exhausted all claims to credibility in its first episode I'm in no hurry to watch the rest. And that's my summary as well. Yeah. The, uh, there's some quirky things in there that, uh, I, you can, you can show the quirks of Mormonism without having to make stuff up. Like the whole, uh, fast food thing. Like he's eating fries from his, uh, you know, fellow cop there. And he's like, Oh, don't worry. I won't tell anybody. Like fast food is somehow against the word of wisdom. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you don't have to make stuff up like that. It's, and, and, Brenda, I, and Brenda you know. is being locked inside of a broadcast at BYU. Mm-hmm. I, that happened to people, I guess, one out of a thousand. Being mm-hmm. a BYU uh, a professor myself, I just mm-hmm. I take issue with it. Trying to make people appear far more creepy than they actually yeah. do. And it's just... Uh... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's one where, you know, unfortunately, Brenda got murdered. I don't know. I don't know what her side of the story is on that. I don't know if that actually happened. I don't know if that was just created to 
um, make to stir up the pot a little bit. Um, certainly felt like it was there just to stir up the pot. If it was a, uh, a true story and it, it happens, I mean, stuff like that happened all the time uh, in all kinds of places, um, you know, especially in uh, previous years. But uh, yeah, that did it happen to her? That seems a little far-fetched. You're right. Um, so I, I, I don't, that's one where if it happened, it deserves to be told, but I, it, I, there's no record from Brenda saying that happened. <laughs> you not, know, so. not to my, to my knowledge. And once you start messing up on all the small things, I start not wanting to fact check the bigger things. Cause if you can't get the small things, right, you're probably mm-hmm. not getting the big things. Right. Yeah. And, and I think there's just a lot of assumptions to be made. I granted a, uh, a headstrong girl that um, is uh, got a, a very strong will of herself. That's trying to become successful in a very patriarchal society, she's going to have uh, certain encounters that are going to hamper that. But uh, you know, it was—I I don't know. Like the way that they, it was played out, it was played out extremely. You know, it, it, she could have had that from a coworker. She could have had that from a fellow student. But to have it from a faculty member at BYU. And they, I guess they weren't all that clear about it being at BYU. Maybe they portrayed it as being more just like the local news station. Uh, I'm trying to look for any, any leeway there of why it was the way it was, but it's, eh, it was in poor taste. They should have been a little bit more deliberate in the way that they handled that scene this rather whole, than just leaving it to, oh, well, this happened. <laughs> this whole series is important yeah. for me. I mean, this yeah. Great. You could have been showing the accurate things through church history that could have been fascinating. You, you mm-hmm. know, you could you could have, it could have been great. Yeah. You know, but like it re- really should have been great. It should have been. But great things, um, they don't stir up controversy. So when you keep messing up all the people bickering and talking and tweeting back and forth, that's when you stir up the viewership. And I honestly think that Dustin Black knows what he's doing. He wants yeah. viewers controversy and he knows that correct facts and proper history is not going to get him the viewership that he wants Mm -hmm. yeah so then it brings it to a different angle of what is it that he's trying to do is he trying to uh, get people just talking about this is he trying and and as people get talking about is he trying to get them to look a little deeper into it to verify that no this isn't how it historically happened uh, it, it was very different because, um, I mean, I could see maybe trying to get people to look a little more closely into this stuff, but I don't know if that's what he's doing. I, I, I'm, I'm looking for any way to give this guy the benefit of the doubt, and it's, it's not going well for Mr. Black. I gave him every benefit of the doubt <clears throat> I'm wanting. Now, I am going to watch the rest of the – how many episodes are there? Were there uh, seven, I think. I'm yeah. probably going to watch the rest of it. But uh, it's could have been something, and I, I just—it's probably going to make you mad. <laughs> mad, honestly. So, yeah. all right, hey Al, uh, really appreciate. It. I'm glad we went over a whole lot today. Did we leave anything mm-hmm. out, or do you have any last thoughts? No, I think uh, we pretty well covered the the news from Mormondom this week. So, um, yeah, anybody that wants to send us an email, we'd love to hear it. And uh, go ahead and. Uh, yeah, give us your opinion. Do you think that uh, Under the Banner of Heaven, as you've seen it so far, is accurate? Is it too much? Is it way off? Um, 
yeah, let us know. Kip Kolob at mormonnewsroundup.org, and we'll see everybody again next week. Great. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a being with no moral constraints. My number one goal is to hurt the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.